0: Welcome to episode 336 of the Reformed Brotherhood.
1: I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed podcast.
0: For you. There's nothing in this world I do. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Can I confirm your articulation? The diction there was like crisp. <laughs> I just felt like we are members. Of the Reform Society, it was so good. I feel like I should be doing like many mumbling
1: mice on like some voice, voice exercises here yep. to get my my uh, diction
0: warmed up. Don't, you don't do that? I thought we were doing that just off camera. Before well, I mean, we I've been up. doing it
1: for hours, so gotcha. I just wanted to like round it out.
0: That makes sense. So let me just tell you how much it paid off right then. Yeah,
1: you got to put you got to put the sets in if you want to get you want to get some good podcasting going
0: on. You know, that's
1: right. Got to get those reps. Yep. Yeah. I do sets. You might do reps. I do sets. I'll put the sets in. You can tell I don't, I don't work out that I went straight to sets. Didn't even think
0: about the word reps. I know what a rep is. So. No, I I, no you do. Speaking of getting some reps in, let's get some reps affirmations and denials in. Let's do it. How about I kick us off? Are you cool with that? Let's do it. So we've talked about, I'm going to keep this really brief. We've done so much recently with this idea of AI and the internet, all these amazing things you can look at and watch that have AI now impounded or embedded in them. And uh, you can just chalk this up to a fun little corner of the internet. So I'm affirming with this idea. What if you could make AI debate itself and then you could watch it? Would you be interested in that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there is a website called opinionate.io. Maybe heavy emphasis on opinionate. I was going to say the same thing. Io. Well, here's what you can do. If you go to opinionate.io, you can pose a question such as, do we truly possess control over our choices or is free will simply an illusion? And basically, this is a tool that will simulate a debate between two debaters and a moderator, providing an informative and engaging introduction in some kind of like discussion or topic. And you just ask it and you just sit back and watch it. So sometimes it's better than other times but it is kind of just fun to make AI talk to itself. So file this away for when you have five minutes that you just want to be thoroughly entertained by the the internet. And so I would affirm that you can go check out opinionate.io. How do you feel about that?
1: I like it. Although I uh, I reneged on my Twitter, anti-Twitter affirmation a little bit, and I got into it with a guy who was saying, uh, there's, there's this like service, and it's not really a service. I think it's like something this dude's building. That basically takes like audio recordings, voicemails of like your deceased loved ones. And like you can have a conversation and it synthesizes their voice and tries to respond. He was calling that necromancy. Like he said that that was communing with the dead,
0: which I think is a
1: little bit of a stretch. This seems like he wouldn't be into this, but I
0: I would be into this. I'm totally (laughs) into this. I need to check this out. (laughs) So I like that you just brought in like an anonymous third party. Yeah. To weigh in. And that was your comparison. That's great.
1: Yeah. I, I'm not sure how it works though, because I asked it which of the hosts of the Reform Brother is more humorous. And it said it didn't know what to do. So maybe it's because we're we're equally humorous.
0: We broke yeah, we broke the AI. That's the right answer. Yeah, it's like a like a robot paradox. That's that's the right answer. Yeah, there's no debate there that's the humor that we both bring is of such an equal and epic level that it's not even worth debating. But yeah, I've I've asked it things like all, most of the things I've asked are of like a theological nature. So of course I've asked about baptism. You know, that happened. I've also asked it about how to honor the Lord's day. I did ask it recently. Why are West Highland Terriers the best dog? And so the moderator will actually choose a winner. And the, the, uh, the AI that was making the case for this West Highland Terrier, it was, it was strong. I mean, it was a cogent argument and <laughs> in the moderator the end was like, listen, the the contrary opinion here that Westies aren't the best dog, it was just making a case. It tells you why. So it was like it was just making a case that everybody should choose a dog that is like unique to their personality or suits their lifestyle. But it said, "Listen, Westies are the best." <laughs> <laughs> the, <laughs> the AI. Just made a AI for a particularly why yeah. it's the best dog. so well, it's not it's not artificial idiots. So, of course, yes. it's going to
1: pick Westies as the best dog. Yes.
0: Uh, so, th- in some ways, it really garnered my trust by me being privy to that argumentation. And I said, listen, I can trust these robot overload- overlord moderators. Yes. And so, yeah, that's all it is. Just a super fun corner of the internet. So, what are you affirming with?
1: Uh, I'm going to affirm this is a practice that I've picked up. Um, so... I've been on this stoicism kick and this productivity kick and this bullet journal kick. I've been kind of on this journey for the last couple months, um, just sort of working through some of these new practices. And one of the things that uh, stoicism, uh, and I think is definitely in line with a lot of Christian reflection on how do we record our thoughts? How do we process things? Um, even going back to when we were talking about Zettelkasten and how you know the act of writing is actually the act of thinking. Um, you right. haven't really thought unless you've processed it and, and writing is one of the ways processing it. So what I've been doing is every morning, in addition to some other journal prompts that I've been using, I write a question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And then I think about are, the, what, you know, I, I'm working on memorizing catechism. This isn't me trying to memorize, although you could use this as a memorization technique or whatever, but I write whatever the next question is. I think about what the answer is. And then I write what I write about in my journal is how does that now, how does that reality affect my day? Um, I don't have my journal handy, but um, like the last prompt I did was question 14 of the catechism, which is what is sin? The answer is sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of God's law. And I reflected on it basically by writing something like, I don't spend enough time pondering God's law, so how can I possibly be in accordance with or in conformity to God's law if I don't actually ponder it and think about it and reflect on it? So this has been a really helpful practice to me. It's straightforward. It's simple. You could do the same thing with any catechism. You could write you know, question one of the Heidelberg or whatever, um, question 98 of the Heidelberg, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit today. Um, you could you could pick Bible verses. You could really do anything that is um, a serial a serial thing where like there's lots and lots of discrete units that you could write out um, as journal prompts and then just reflect on a little bit. What what does this mean for my life? How, how does this how does this translate to actual practice um, and or what does it make me think about? What is it you know, what does it help me understand? I need to work on in my life, whatever it might be. How does this help me glorify God more? All of those are questions that come up when you're working through this stuff. But I would encourage people to think about it. Try it out. Um, You could do it electronically. You don't even need to write it out. You could just read a catechism question and the answer and then think and ponder on what it is. I do think that there's something beneficial about actually physically. I'm not talking about like typing it out on a like, on Obsidian, although you could do that, I think there's a there's a benefit to actually physically writing it out. You go slower, you think about it more. There's multiple senses engaged as you're doing it. Um, the the practice of writing it out is definitely something um, that should be looked at. So, uh, I think it's a good idea. I think it's something I would commend people to consider. Um, just journal, but but journal with intentionality. You know, pick pick a um, pick a practice that you are designing and it should be something you kind of design yourself. Don't take my, I mean, you can take what I do if you want and just do that, but think through the way you work, the way God has created you, the way that God has sanctified you, it is sanctifying you. And then structure a practice that leans into that. You know, I I'm working on memorizing the catechism. My brain sort of works in theological categories. Not everybody's going to be like me or going to be working on the same thing. So maybe it's, you know, you pick a Christian song that you really like and you go through line by line, right? Or you you go through the Psalms and every day you do one Psalm or a proverb or something like that. Um, yeah, but check it out. it's It's been really, really helpful for me. And I really think it would help other people.
0: I like your bringing that together under the auspice of intentional processing or taking time to metabolize and to meditate. And really what we're talking about is it's a meditation of a kind, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And the, the, the Stoics would call, would when they talk about That's meditation,
0: right. when you hear about
1: Stoicism and doing meditation, this is what they're doing, is they're writing out their thoughts and then they go back and review their thoughts. So like Meditations by Marcus Aurelius is one of the most widespread famous Stoic writings. It was just his personal thoughts that he wrote down and he would write them down and then he would go back and read them. Um, You could, I don't know that I would advise this because I'm not a huge fan of Jonathan Edwards. You could take Jonathan Edwards resolutions and just think through one every day, you know, as your meditation. Um, You could do this with really, really anything. Um, Obviously, like what you choose for your content as a journal prompt is going to be formative for the output. What you put in is is going to affect what you get out. So you want to choose your source wisely. But you could use any sort of Christian literature or any sort of um, spiritual literature. It doesn't even have to be. I mean, it doesn't have to be Christian literature. You could take Marcus Aurelius's Meditations or Ryan Holiday has a book. He his his sort of biggest book, that's the most popular book, is the um, the Daily Stoic. He's got this podcast right. too. He produced a journal uh, that is is daily prompts based on the daily the Daily Stoic. Um, so I have that. I've been working through that. Um, you, you can do a lot of different things. Um, so yeah, I, I would check it out. And this journaling practice, you know, it, it doesn't have to be you don't have to sit down and do seven hours of journaling in the morning. Um, some people do this thing called daily pages where they sit down and they they handwrite three pages of notes long form, um, just sort of stream of consciousness. I haven't tried that yet, but that seems excessive to me. Seems like a lot of time investment, but some people find that really helpful. For me, this is just a way when I wake up to get my mind focused on something. And then it sort of sets like a framework for the day that I'm kind of thinking in that register. You know, I'm thinking about what is sin? Okay. How does this affect me? How does this apply to me? Or I'm thinking about like, what, what is it that, you know, what is it, what does it mean for me in my daily life? And how does, how do I think about it throughout the day that my, um, that God's decrees are holy, wise, and powerful, or that His providence is his execution of his holy, wise, and powerful will like, and then it, you know as I'm using my bullet journal for other stuff I see that that prompt is there and what I wrote and it's kind of just mutually self-reinforcing. Yeah, that's great. Mutually another great self-reinforcing. Idea. I think that was a pretty twisted up statement,
0: but you get what I mean. That's fun. I think it was great. We're all checking <laughs> Yeah. I was just going to add to that another great way you can apply that I think, an easy way if somebody's feeling like, well, I don't really know what would be like the the right the right thing, the right um going to use the words like emphasis but what would be like the something that i could use that would spur me on in a non-threatening kind of easy compartmentalized way and i would would point everybody back to the psalms like a great way would be that your prayer book and start that with your your time meditation if only like in addition to maybe what you're reading in the scriptures if only what you do is you read the psalm you literally close the psalm and then you stop and say how would i say this in my own words or to your point, how might I write this in my own words or what does it mean? But even then, I just love this idea of let's be thoughtful and really meditation, even as the psalmist describes it to us, is of course using this Hebrew language around chewing the cud or lowing this constant, consistent regurgitation is coming over and over again of an idea. But, you know, whereas as we talked about before, some kind of secular, even pagan, kinds of meditation even like headspace sometimes is is mostly about trying to empty this is about trying to be filled and then to process that filling over and over again so it's it's almost like pushing out the salt water bringing fresh water it's purifying it's pushing out the scum on the ponds, so to speak because it's just been sitting and stagnant and refilling with this great the living water from god's word and then being able to bask in that to literally swim in it and so i love this idea of like whatever you do close it down think about it, write it out, process it. And really that's meditation. There's no secret here, right? There's yeah. no, there is work involved, but there's no secret. It's not yeah. secret. Yeah. It's just good.
1: So, well, and the point is, especially in this sort of like productivity production, you know, creative world where it's every, your, your life seems to be measured and people measure their own lives by what it is. They output what they produce. Um, there, there's a place for that, right? There's a, there's a, the human person because of how we're created. Um, well, we'll, actually we will talk about this a little bit today, I think, but because of how we're created in the image of God, we are designed to be productive creatures. We're designed to be fruitful and to multiply. And that doesn't just refer to childbearing and child rearing, right? There's the cultural mandate to go out into the world and to cultivate it. Um, that said not everything we do has to have an output that is designed to add something to the world. And that that for me, that's one of the key insights. I used to do almost all of my study with the intention of writing a blog article, producing a paper, adding to the podcast, whatever it might be. And that actually really, really um, robbed the joy in a lot of senses of just like sitting down and reading a good book. Um, right. I would take notes with the intention of producing something later. Um, that's fine. That's good. There's a place for that. But now when I take notes or when I read something, I'm also cognizant of the fact that like sometimes just building my own person and my own self is a valuable thing. Because ultimately that will contribute, it, it will contribute to the world because I'm I'm in the world and I'm contributing to it. Um, but this is the same thing. You're not writing these things down in order to share them someday. Like I'm not writing down these things in the journal hoping someday when I'm like a famous podcaster or like a famous professor or whatever that someone's going to find my journal. Like that's not at all what this is. In fact, this journal will probably end up in the trash in three or four months when I'm, when I'm going on to the next notebook, when I fill this one up. So this is just a good practice. It's good. It's been good for my spiritual life. It's been good for my mental health in terms of just having a place to like think about things, you know, your journal becomes almost like a thought partner. Like you it's a mirror in a certain sense. And so you're kind of talking to yourself and you're working through things in written form as you write them out. And that feeds into other things. So it's just been a really good practice. I can't commend journaling enough. I was kind of always a little bit of a skeptic until I actually like sat down and really gave it a go. Um, The bullet journal method book has a little bit of like, it's a little woo woo at times, if you know what I mean. Um, But it has some good good theory behind the importance of journal and self-reflection. So I I just have really, really enjoyed this new practice that
0: I've picked up. And this is, this is the most recent kind of iteration of it. All right. So I'm going to take us a totally different direction with my denial. So I have the privilege. This is not the denial. I have the privilege of serving as a treasurer for a charitable foundation. And I'm in that time of the year where I'm working on all the tax documentation. So I'm denying against not taxes. I don't want anybody to get this twisted up. This is Romans 13 style, not taxes, but just how difficult our government seems to make it to yeah. file taxes for all kinds of reasons, but especially if you're a not-for-profit organization. So yeah. I think I mentioned before. I'm going to start this game. I'm going to. I want to trademark this game. I'm going to call it. Is it a non-profit tax form or a robot from Star Wars? That's the <laughs> game I want to create because. I'm knee deep in 990s and all kinds of other tax documentation. Yeah. And honestly, this, this charitable foundation does a lot of good, honestly, actually it funds several initiatives that are seeking to serve in Jesus name. So I absolutely love it, but it's just such a pain to file the tax documentation. And ours is an organization that's relatively simple and straightforward. There's not a lot to it, but I understand that there needs to be good reason for accountability because there's certain exemption that's granted by our federal government. And I'm so grateful for that. But at the same time, I'm kind of like, guys, come on, you, you know, this stuff, yeah. you, you know, what's going on here. Just make it easier. We're just trying to do a little good here.
1: Yeah. I saw a funny meme online a while back and what, you know, it was like one of those like fake dialogues. And the first one was the U S government. And it was like, Hey, you owe us money. The second one was like, Oh, great. How much? And he's like, guess. And then, and then the guy guesses a number and he's like, wrong, straight to jail. (laughs) That's, that's what it's like. Sometimes like you, you just, you've just got to guess. Like I have no, I, I haven't done our taxes yet. Last year was the easily the most complex tax year that we have ever had and probably will ever have. We had a child. Uh, we switched jobs. Um, we had major medical expenses, um we i have inheritance from my mother's estate i, I have no idea how this is going to work out i'm just a. the only hope i have is that i don't make enough money for the government to care if i get it right all that much so if anything i think this year i'm probably going to short myself on my refund uh by not getting it right so yeah taxes understand the need for taxes i'm not one of those taxationist theft guys but uh, yeah, it's needlessly complex and needlessly untransparent. That's true. It, certainly
0: in the US, we have brothers and yeah. sisters all over the world who will be saying things like, I just have to send in a postcard. Yep. And that is not our experience. Yep. So. I just
1: have to sign saying that I'm authorizing the government to right. process my taxes. Yep.
0: Right. So I keep reading things that's going to improve and there's lots of pressure and pushing, but I was just intimately reminded of that this morning as I was sitting down to gather up all this documentation and put it together. And I was just thinking, wow, could we make this more complicated? Could we also refer to, can we have more alphabet soup in this process? Is that possible? <laughs> like more co- alphanumeric combinations and all of these like iterations. And it's, it's like cursive. It's like Taurus is all the way down. Yeah. Like, look at this portion. Then, well, you're going to need this file. To, you're going to need to file this form if you're looking at this line. And I'm like, where is that form? And they will just like, go out to the website, find that. I was like, my goodness. No wonder why we need an intercessor. You yeah. know what I mean? Like we need an intermediary here. I need a tax accountant to help me out. And of course that's exactly what we do. So I'm doing very li- little lifting, but I was like, my goodness, this is intense. Crazy. Yeah.
1: It's, it's crazy.
0: All right. What are you denying against?
1: So this is not so much a denial. Um, I, It's not really a, we distinguish it's something else. So I wanted to take a little bit. I wanted just to, 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 uh, Seed my time in the denial portion here to do a little bit of exegesis on a passage. That's been kind of a hot topic lately. Are you, you on board with this? Yeah, sure. All right. I'll try to try to be brief. So this is not a denial of James white. I did not listen to his episode where he went through Philippians two. I'm familiar with his interpretation of James of of Philippians two. I think it's a little bit off and I think it's off in a way that most people in The modern evangelical world are so I wanted to I wanted to look at it and sort of talk through the text a little bit. I'm going to make a little bit of use of the Greek, but I don't have a big whiteboard. So you're just gonna have to listen. Um, so I'm going to read it in the English, and then I want to talk about a few a few features of the Greek that I think are instructive for us, because most of us, I think, have come to this text assuming that there's really just one uniform way that it's understood and that the history of interpretation, orthodox interpretation is always understood this way, uh, and it's not the case. Um, so starting in verse, uh, let's start in verse four. Uh, so or first three, sorry, Philippians two, verse three, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count yourself, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not, equ- did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. So large chunk of text there. The way that this is usually understood is that In verse uh, seven, we have the phrase emptied himself, uh, being born in the likeness of men. In verse eight, we have being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Usually this is understood that all of those verbs refer to the incarnation itself, that that he emptied himself by assuming the human nature. He humbled himself by becoming man. He uh, took on the form of a servant in the incarnation itself. This is a, is a, Uh, is a possible interpretation. It's the dominant interpretation, uh, probably in in the modern era. It's not actually the only interpretation that we find in the history of the church. And in some parts, some, some eras of the church, this isn't even the dominant interpretation. So here's what I want to want to pose as a possible interpretation that I want our listeners to consider. What if this entire section is not talking about the act of becoming incarnate, but is talking about what Jesus does having already become incarnate. So let, let me let me reread that and phrase it a little differently. This is the ESV I was reading. I'm going to modify the phrasing a little bit to emphasize this. So I'm just going to read from uh, verse 6. Who, although he was God, did not account equality with God, a thing to be held on to or a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, having already been born in the likeness of men And having already been found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So I'm going to justify why I added that having already been, but if we read it this way, the incarnation, the the incarnate state of Christ is the context in which all of these things happen. So he didn't empty himself by taking on the form of a servant, which we roughly would say the, the human nature. He emptied himself when he already was in the form of a servant, when he already was in the incarnate state. And here's where I want to go in the Greek to justify it. So if you look at verse seven, I'm not going to try to read the Greek out loud because I'm terrible at sight reading Greek. Um, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. So the word for um, the, the phrasing here is um, the word we're looking at is genominos, which is an aorist active participle. So a participle is a, is a, basically it's a verb that's turned into some sort of noun or adverb. So it's a, a verbal form that has become more like an adverb or more like a noun, depending on the form and the place it takes in the sentence. An aorist is a, is a past tense verb, although tense in Greek looks, works a little bit weird. Um, but basically what this is, is this is a, this is a, an adverb that tells us the time frame. And it roots this time frame is in something that's happened in the past. So an aorist participle of circumstance uh, is the temporal time frame in which the main verb takes place. And the main verb here is um, ek- ekinosin, right? That's he emptied himself, right? So the emptying of himself is taking place in the context of having become man or being born. The word born doesn't even exist in the text. So literally what it says is he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, having been in the likeness of men or having become in the likeness of men. At some point in the past, he became in the likeness of men. And in some time in the past, he was found in human form. So all of what's going on here, grammatically speaking, is already in the incarnation. Now, that's the exegetical part. And I I could go into more depth. I'm not going to because I'm trying to keep this somewhat brief. That's the exegetical part. Now we need to think about this. Once we've got the exegetical part, we have to bounce that off against our theological part, our systematic part, right? And the reason we are justified in doing this for two reasons. One, we we come to the text as Christians. Josh Summer on um, Baptist Broadcast just did a great episode on this, that once we become Christians, we come to the text knowing that it can't say certain things. This cannot say that Jesus is not God. It cannot say that Jesus became less than God. Cannot say that God changed. We we affirm those things, we know them to be true. So the practice of systematic theology is to synthesize all of what scripture says as best we can in a coherent whole. Going down to verse nine, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. Well, can God exalt God? No, because God can't be exalted higher. So we we already see from the text we're talking about Jesus. According to humanity, and Jesus, according to humanity, is exalted above everyone else. He's given the name that is above all names. And what is that name? I think we're conditioned to think that that name is Yahweh. That name is Jesus. He's given the name that is above all names, and that name is Jesus. And at that name, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. We're not bowing in this passage, we're not bowing to Yahweh in abstract, we're bowing to our mediator who has redeemed us and has given us the name of all, all names. And how did he get, how did he obtain this name? By becoming obedient to the point of death. Well, theologically speaking, if we root this passage, if this passage is happening prior, temporarily prior to the incarnation and logically prior to the incarnation, we have EFS, right? Cause we have the son who's being obedient. He's submitting himself to the Father. He's obeying the Father's command. We have EFS. And if he's becoming obedient and he's being exalted as God, we have multiple wills in the Trinity. We have tritheism. So I'm not, I'm not arguing dogmatically that any other understanding of this text is wrong. This is a text that's difficult. It no matter how you slice it, it affirms Christ's deity, right? He's in the form of God, even though he's God. The question is: is he saying? in eternity past, he did not consider equality God to be something to be held on to, well, he didn't let go of his deity in the incarnation. The only reason we would have to come to that conclusion, which is what Dr. White lands on so hard here, the only reason we have to come to that conclusion is if the incarnation somehow actually did represent him letting go of what it meant to be God. He doesn't consider it something to be grasped, so he lets it go and becomes incarnate. That's That's the force of what Dr. White's argument comes to. If instead we say, even though he was God, even though he had this, he was God and he remained God, he did not consider equality something to be grasped. So he was he was willing, according to humanity, to allow himself to be born, to be placed into this low estate and to sacrifice himself. Practically speaking, I'm taking a very Petrus van Masters approach here, right? The, the theoretical is that first part. The practical part, what we're being called in this passage to do is to have the mind of Christ. To, to follow Christ's example and to put others above ourselves well did God put others above himself in the Incarnation no no he he didn't he he still remained God. God Jesus still remained God can we change our nature can we take on a second nature can we sacrifice ourselves for the sins of the world no so so how do we mimic how do we in in how do we um imitate Christ in this when it's a metaphysical impossibility if instead, what we're imitating Christ here is the, the mind of Christ that we're supposed to be have is to be obedient even to the point of death. Well, that's a huge theme in Paul's theology. He says to Timothy, he's already being poured out as a drink offering. It's a different word for poured out here than, than emptied. But the imagery is the same. Paul is pouring himself out. He's emptying himself. He's sacrificing himself for the sake of the church and for the good of the elect. He's calling the Philippians to do the exact same thing. And he's using the incarnate mediator Christ as the example. So again, this is not the only interpretation. Good Christians, uh, Doctor Doctor White's exegetical work is fine. I mean, I didn't watch this particular this particular presentation of it, but his work in Forgotten Trinity is fine. Like it's a good it's a good defense. He did the most recent sermon that's gotten everybody up in arms. I actually think the first half of it was pretty good. Um, and it was a treatment of this passage and it was a good grounding of the Trinity. But there are other options that I think make better sense, that better account with what the Greek is, seems to be saying. Now, Dr. Dr. White could run laps around me with Greek. I'm not going to try to pretend that I'm a better Greek scholar than he is, but the Greek supports another interpretation. And I think supports it better, to be honest. But all of that said, we need to come to these texts and recognize that we're not the only people who have ever read it. And there's there's very rarely one interpretation that all faithful Christians have universally taken without exception. Calvin takes this view. The Hamas of Brockle takes this view. Um, there are others in the Reformed tradition that take this view. There are people in the Reformed tradition. The Westminster Confession itself seems to take the view that this is a reference to the incarnation itself. I don't know that I w- I can go there. And the proof texts of the confession are not constitutional or binding. But I just wanted to take that time to go through this because this, this passage is getting so much airtime right now. And nobody is talking about this other, other thing. And I think it's actually a better interpretation uh, that makes better sense of the Greek. It makes better sense systematically. There's a better practical output. Every kind of measurement that we look at in terms of the validity of an interpretation is right here and it, it lands on all of them. So that's my spiel. I don't want to invest too much more time on it. Uh, I'm sure that we'll come back to it again at some point, but I, I think it's worth looking at.
0: That was a bonus episode right there. Yeah. 11 minutes on the clock, 18% of your average From Brotherhood episode.
1: Well, 11 minutes is faster than I thought it was going to go. So
0: <laughs> there you go. Well, speaking of moving quickly, expeditiously, efficaciously, if you will, into the topic at hand, people will know if they've been tracking with us that we're talking about the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words. And so we're finding ourselves in the second one, which people might think they might say, oh, man. So here's what's going to happen. Somebody's either going to be like, yes, give it to them. They're going to talk about the second commandment. And other people are like, "Oh no, not the second commandment!" Again, we've have we heard you guys talk about this ad nauseum. So everybody is wrong.
1: <laughs> At least we hope they are.
0: I yeah, mean, the episodes
1: is- are work in progress, but
0: that's right. It's it's going to unfold right in front of your ears here, but. We're coming to the Second Commandment, having already come through some prolegomena and the First Commandment, of course, everything is accumulating. Everything is coming up. It's all heaped up. And so here we get to the second commandment, which really all of them are, but in particular, this is like a trusted, protecting friend to guard our ways. It's going to guard our worship. Because of course, whenever we set about to worship God, all of our sins, our baggage, our problems, they come to the fore and they spoil that worship. They want to spill into it. And of course, our great enemy, Satan himself, doesn't want us to worship the one true God in a true way. And so here we find that God in his brilliance, he sets forth this commandment to us in the second iteration here, by helping us to direct our steps or worship him in a way in which he wants to be worshiped. Yeah. And so if we start with this idea of like, well, what does this all mean? And then how do we actually apply it? What is implied in that? I would say something like this. God wants to bind his people close to him in a union that leaves nothing between him and us. God wants to forge a close union with you and I and let nothing separate us. Yeah. And any anytime that we fall short of the second commandment, there's something else that we're worshiping and it creates a rift. It puts a crowbar in between, it prize us away. And so really, I think that's the best place that we can start when we start unpacking the second commandment. Not again, loved ones, and the way you think we're going to go with it. You've <laughs> already heard this before on this, but in a slightly different way. It's again, this metaphor of taking the jewel in your hand, holding up to the light and turning it over and finding that this is something that is trusted that we ought to come before God and understand what he means. Let, let me say one other thing before we kind of really get into this. And that is, I think sometimes, and, and Tony, you'll keep me honest here, you told tell me if this is not right. Sometimes, I think the impression is given that the Reformation was all about this rediscovery of the doctrine of justification by faith. I think you can also make a case that the primary concern of the Reformation was actually this rediscovery of the way to worship God by those who were justified by faith. Yeah. And so it's all these methods of removing what is extraneous, what is inappropriate in our worship. And because we know God is the one true God, because we know he has rescued his people, because he is great and sovereign, and he draws those onto himself by his own sovereign election, we know this comes with like a commensurate instruction on how to worship. And that's where we find ourselves when we get to the second commandment.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think um, <clears throat> I think you're right that uh, that was a major rediscovery in the Reformation. Um, I think, and I, I think a lot of Lutherans would probably actually wear what I'm about to say as a badge of honor. Um, sure. That's one of the main differences between the Lutheran and the the Reformed um, churches in on the continent. Um, and then, of course, we get into the the um, British Reformation. It's a little bit different, but the Lutheran churches, the Lutheran Church, very much um, they they camped out on sola scriptura and they camped out on justification by grace alone through faith alone. And in a very real sense, they didn't progress past that systematically. Right. Um, and, and I think they would actually th- think that's a good thing. They think that the Reformed churches probably strayed further past that in terms of speculation and, and over systematizing things. The Reformed churches um, in the Netherlands, in Switzerland, um, under Calvin and Zwingli's influence, and then as that got transferred over to the British Isles. Um, they they continued the reform beyond just the soteriology and the bibliology. Now they've in my my view, and I think this is it's kind of the standard historical view that most reform historians would come to, they took those insights and now they've applied them to all of life, all of all of Christian life. Uh, that's why we have a regulative principle, right? Because Scripture regulates worship the the Lutherans would say scripture regulates worship, but it regulates it permissively where we would say it regulates it restrictively. Um, right. and, and then we've talked about before that this regulative principle is not actually just involving worship, that this principle that scripture regulates all of life by placing boundaries about where we can and can't go and what we can and can't do. Exactly. That's a, a principle that applies to all of life. The right. Lutheran church and the Anglicans wouldn't they wouldn't hold that up as true in most cases they would say yes the scripture places moral boundaries on us but it does so by way of teaching us sort of what the right way to live is it doesn't place these boundaries in the same sense it doesn't restrict us in the same sense that the reforms say particularly involving worship so this is where we get the idea that you're not allowed I'm just going to throw it out there and then we can move past you're, yeah. you're not allowed to make images of Jesus not because it's some, Explicitly commanded sin, it is, but more so, more fundamentally, because we've never been told that we're allowed to. It's not that we've been told not to; we have been told not to. But the more foundational principle is that you haven't been told that you can. So the, the kind of the core text that that a lot of people turn to is the the account of a um, Nadab and Abihu, right? It doesn't say that they were punished for offering strange fire, which they were commanded not to do. It says they were punished for offering strange fire, which they were not commanded to do. There's a subtle difference there, but it's an important difference. And so the the regulative principle of worship, which is what the reformed think that the second commandment really is, is about the fact that God, as God, that the, the second, third, and fourth commandments are really like expositions of the first commandment applied to right. specific areas. So the first commandment we talked about. God is not only God, but he's our God. We're obligated for him to be our God and our redeemer. And so therefore, we owe him all of our obedience. We owe him all of our worship. We owe him everything that we have. Now, the second commandment is how does that apply explicitly to how we worship God? The the, the manner and means and rituals and activities that we use to worship God. How do we let God be God? How do we acknowledge God's sovereignty in how we worship? Well, we do that by only worshiping the way that he's commanded us to. Not by saying we're not going to worship ways he hasn't commanded us. We're going to worship in ways he has commanded us. We're going to do everything he commands us to do and we're not going to do anything that he hasn't commanded us to do. Now that has all sorts of implications in terms of what kind of music do we sing? Do we use instruments? All of that's important discussions. We're not going to talk about much of those today. All of those have important implications that we've talked about in other shows. But the, the core principle of the second commandment is that God is the Lord. He gets to decide how we're going to worship him. Full stop. That's it. That's the second commandment. Shut the episode off right now. Please don't. But if you do, you've got it. That's all we really have to say about the second commandment. God gets to decide how he's going to worship. We can't invent other ways to do it because those don't honor him. He doesn't, he doesn't accept them in principle. Now we can talk about like how Christ redeems, um, Less than perfect worship. That's a. We'll get to that in a different point. But that's the principle. God gets to decide how he's going to
0: be worshiped. Full stop. Yeah, the second commandment is, in lots of ways, a call to make sure that your rationalization and your processing, your logic is all under submission of the scripture. Even if we don't understand it, or we might try to make arguments for why what we're doing is totally innocuous, it doesn't matter. It's God is the one... in other words, like to your point, if we're going to subscribe to the fact that he is the only God that he has done the rescuing, that he's purchased and redeemed a people for himself, then he gets to decide because he's the owner. So he just gets to decide, even if you're a bit like, well, you know, I, I see what you're saying, but like, isn't it harmless to introduce something here or there? God's saying, that's not what I'm, I'm about. I get to choose. Everybody's heard me uses this uh, kind of metaphor before. It's a bit like, you know, we appreciate that when it's like somebody's special day when it's like their birthday, like they yeah. should get to choose the way in which they're celebrated. That's like, just seems common sense. And here we're saying God gets to choose how he's celebrated, how he's adored, how he's worshipped in both, in every conceivable way, actually. And so he comes to this by saying to us, again, like almost right at the beginning, these things are already well established. You know these things about me. You know that I'm the truly God. So because of this. Do not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the water underneath. Now, to like stop just there for a second. Hopefully, people see already like that the regular principles in play, right? Because yeah. did the Israelites make by God's command, especially when they were building the tabernacle, some images, for instance, of, of angels in the course of like either like physical form? Or in like tapestry weaving, yes. So here you're already seeing that God is regulating though what is appropriate. He gets to decide. He's giving explicit yeah. and specific prescriptive instruction. So if God is like extremely and epically holy, totally set apart, totally otherworldly, we can't find the margins or the edges of him, then because of that, he just gets to decide. And, and it doesn't even matter what we think about it. That's kind of the point here. And I would say, like, from the garden, that's always happening. But because of what happens in the fall, God comes in to provide these guide rails, these proper instructions for us to understand what it means to worship him. So he goes on to say in verse five of Exodus 20, "'You shall not worship or serve them.'" That is like these images. "'For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments.'" And I think why this is always timely, it's of course like, I know you love when I use this phrase, eternally contemporary, but like especially relevant today is because more than ever, especially like in North America, we just live in a visual world. You know, everything is, there's all of this stimulation that comes through the eyes and the church is always prone to succumb to a particular emphasis of its surrounding culture or society. And so it's common today, of course, for an organization to have a symbol you know like and we want to take and have a symbol like from the bible so we're often tempted to have like something that represents or depicts god that that's just like a natural i think proclivity that is of the natural man not of the spiritual state and so we do have to resist that by way of what god gives us here as the proper method and mean and mode of worship this is like a great love of God toward us, yeah. that he will give us this proper direction so that we might have worship that is fulfilling, that leads to abundant life, rather than one that's cheapened in some way, or that, again, separates us, so to speak, from him, not salvifically, but in appreciation and in harmony of a relationship. So this is really about defeating those things and it got about God freeing us up to not be distracted by stuff. Like yeah. If you think about your phone, maybe... Probably this doesn't happen to you, Tony, but like if I'm trying to study something and my phone is also on the desk, there is like a high probability that I'm going to be frequently distracted by that phone and it's going to compromise yeah. my study, my appreciation, my work of what's going on there. And I think when well, we, this is the same thing, God is saying to us, like, put all distractions aside, set them away because it's not what I desire of you or from you. And I'm making this abundantly clear. So I think all of the scripture is regulative in this way and that we, we can cherry pick, of course, certain passages like Exodus 20, that point to that. But from the very beginning, God has been regulating worship, even coming down to the, the tree in the garden. Like it's always been about worship and to say like, well, how dare God say what we should do? Or if there's, to try to make an argument from silence when it comes to worship is very dangerous because God, again, is epically and extremely holy. And if we already come to that by way of the first commandment, then really the second commandment already says for us, this is the way, walk in it. Not this is the way, mandalorian (laughs) i just said that but like more like the psalms like you know whether you hear a voice calling to the right to the left like this is the way walking it. it's just a great kindness of god that he would direct us he's literally directing our paths of worship to tell us what is the proper way to to do this to participate in and to have life with him
1: yeah and actually going back to genesis uh three i think it's really actually really valuable to see that right so i'm not going to go to the passage but there's a longstanding interpretive um, choice that people in the Reformed tradition across the history of the Reformed tradition have made to see the the tree of life as a, a sort of sacrament. Calvin actually right. says explicitly that it's a sacrament. The more, the more common language is that it's a pledge. It's a pledge or a sign of the promise of God in the covenant of works, which is, I mean, by definition, that's kind of like what a sacrament is. But um, Calvin explicitly says that. Well, what did Adam and Eve do? <laughs> they chose to partake of another sacrament right. that God had not commanded them. I mean, He commanded them explicitly not to do it, but fundamentally, they decided they were going to do they were going to do their own thing. God had given them this this luscious garden to eat of any tree of the garden. He had given them the tree of life. Um, which you know commentators go back and forth on whether they actually had eaten of it or not, but either way, the tree of life was the sacrament of the covenant of works, or the sign of the promise of the covenant of works, and they would have partaken of it when they when they you know, were given the blessing of the covenant of works. Well, what did they do? They partook of a different sacrament. And then I want to go um, I want to go quickly to uh, Colossians two because there's an element of the second commandment that I don't think gets enough airtime. And and since we're trying to take a different approach on this, we'll take that approach. Colossians 2, uh, 23 here. Let me just pull it up in my Logos Bible software, reformbrotherhood.com slash (laughs) Logos. Chapter 2, 23 reads, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the bottom, uh, to the body, severity to the bottom. Probably that too, but- uh, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Right. So they're they're talking, he's talking about these, these rules that the the um sort of pseudo ascetics in Colossae had imposed don't eat, don't touch, don't handle. And he's right. saying these have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. Well, what he's saying there is like these guys are making it up on the fly. And it's not just that they're imposing new rules, but they think that they're worshiping God. By doing things and imposing restrictions, adding things to the worship of God that God had not commanded. There, right. there are some things that God commanded um, commanded the Jews not to eat. Those restrictions do not apply to Gentiles. So, So whether these were Judaizers in view here, or whether these were Greek ascetics that were you know, saying other things are off limits and you can't, you can't really worship God unless you, you know, you follow these. They were adding things to God's law. They were adding practices to what God had commanded as the means to worship him. And this is called self-made religion. So, so the second commandment, there's only two options, right? Either you're going to worship the way God wants to be worshiped, or you're going to worship the way God has said, not, not, has not said to worship. And when you do that, you're committing the same sin that Adam and Eve did in the garden you're, you're taking, you're worshiping the creature in this case, yourself, you're creating your own worship. And that worship is a worship of yourself. And you're taking that instead of God. And I want to read, um, I want to read Psalm 135 here. This is one of the proof texts from question 98 of the, um, Heidelberg catechism, which is the question that talks about like, can we have picture books with pictures, Uh, to sort of teach people who can't read. And the answer is no. But Psalm 35, um, verses 15 through 18 says, the idols of the nation are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouth. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. So there's this principle related to idolatry, that if you worship something other than God, you become like that thing. So some idols are called vanities. That's one of the Hebrew words for idols is vanity. So it's like this emptiness, these empty things. Um, that's, I think the most common word or the most common association with idols is emptiness. So if you worship empty things, then you become empty. Um, you know, Jeremiah ten eight says that the idols are foolish and stupid. Their teaching is wood. Well, what it's getting there is like they're they're made of wood. So their teaching is wood. And if you worship them, you're going to become like wood. Like you like you're going to have the same function in the world as wood. Like that's kind of what it's getting at. And this is what Paul's getting at self-made religion. If we worship a creature, we become more like a creature. Whatever that creature is, whether it's fallen humanity, if we worship fallen humanity, if we worship a statue, we become like the idols that we worship. Right. And this is not just like an idolatry thing. When we worship God, we become more like God. When we worship Jesus, we're conformed to his image. So, so this is not only about these do's and don'ts. This is a sanctification issue. This is a matter of Christian living. God gives us the pattern and the modes of worship, the elements that he demands are for our good. Because when we engage in worship, according to God's precepts, and we refuse to engage in worship, In ways that he has not commanded us to then the spirit moves through those things not because the spirit is bound to particular forms or particular things but because that's the way that god has promised to transform his people is through the worship that he has prescribed and and that that he has commanded us he's promised to meet us in these particular ways if you go back to our um our sacrament stuff he's commanded to he's he's promised to meet us through ordinary bread and ordinary wine and ordinary water and he's commanded us to meet with him and he has promised to meet with us on an ordinary day of the week we don't have we don't have these special high festivals every year i know that there's there's evangelicals and even some reformed that still celebrate christmas but those are not high festivals they're not high holy days they're not obligor, oblig, obligatory days of mass, like in the Roman Catholic church, we have an ordinary day every week. It's no different than any other day, except that God has set it apart. And when we follow his command and we meet when we're going to get to that more, when we get to the fourth commandment, but when we follow his command, we worship the way that he's commanded us to, he makes us more like him because he's promised to do that. That that gets at the 10th commandment. It's a covenant love or the, the second commandment. Right. He shows covenant, steadfast love to thousands of those who love him and keep his commandments. That's not a legalism thing. This is just the way of life. that Walk in it, right? That's the principle
0: here. Exactly. Yeah. There, in other words, there's no rival way to worship him. There's no better method. And what God is saying is this is the proper way. Right. This is the proper way. It's like any other thing in life where we might say like there's a right and a wrong way to do yeah. something. There's a way that's efficacious and leads toward blessing. And there's a way that is wrong and leads toward downfall and regret and destruction. So the commandment is really forbidding using anything in creation to depict God as a help when worshiping. I think that's helpful. Like again, you're you're asking us, you're saying we need to submit our reasoning and our processing of what God is saying underneath the scriptures so that we don't reinvent or say we can do it better or know better than God what is necessary for children or for other people or for the Lord's day. So one reason for this prohibition is that I think our understanding of God is not left to the ingenuity of humans. You know, God is so big that of course, no human mind, no matter how gifted can possibly imagine what he's like, we need a divine revelation in order to know God right. and how he ought to be worshipped. And so God in his kindness says, here's the way again. We keep, sorry, I just keep saying that. So we're not to shape an image and that's shaping. And maybe this is going to trigger some people. But here's my argument. I think you're making the same thing. I'm just going to try to like distill it a little bit. That shaping of an image could be physical or it could be mental. Right. It's according to our own thinking. It's another way saying, like, God, I'm going to apply and leverage my own creative ability or otherwise, even, let's say, taking something that you said about yourself and moving away from the direct and very explicit commandment, it's a joy that I think I can make myself helpful by yeah. applying it. That is the problem, actually. And so we really just need to trust God that he knows what's best and that he knows what is proper for him in our worship. You know, one other reason I think that this is problematic is that we really need to remember, and honestly, this seems so straightforward, but I think it is difficult for us, that God is invisible. And one real danger arising from a visible representation of God is that it makes us forget crucial aspects of who he is, such as his invisibility. Yeah. So no creature can see God in his essence. So even, that's why you can go back to episode like 10, 46, 122, 300, 264. I'm just going to presume that somewhere in that we've talked about the images (laughs) of Jesus, or if not, it's going to be there behind the scenes anyway. Right. But this idea that because we cannot see his essence when we represent him, we are falling into oh, get ready for this. We're falling into some type of heresy because. We are bifurcating. We are separating. I know we don't mean to do that, but if God is as great and as big as he said he is, if he is Lord of all the earth, if every nation, every time will bow and confess before his son, if he gets to decide how he is viewed and how we ought to worship, then I think at the end of the day, in the final analysis, we just need to take that seriously. And he says, don't make images. Yeah. And I think we just need to meditate more on what that means. And I honestly believe, of course, because God is true to his promises, that he will reward us. As he said here, like this is the first commandment, by the way, where we get some kind of commentary on the side where there is a blessing and a curse yeah. with it. Yeah, And of course, like you're seeing, everybody's seeing the trajectory, like there is the threat to God is not profanity per se. It is cheapening. Yes. And so we're going to see this like in the taking the Lord's name in vain, which is coming next. But this is the bridge to that. There is a cheapening that can happen. In other words, get after the real thing. And God says, here is the real thing. Here is the real way to worship me. That what I always come to in this particular instance is where I work. And that is, When it comes to physical currency, fiat currency of any country, the way that financial institutions train their people to recognize it is not by going after what is counterfeit, but by thoroughly understanding what is the real thing. So any good teller worth their salt, can, as they're counting a stack of money, can feel immediately when there is a bill that doesn't comport with the proper sense of the composition. That is what we're talking about here. God just says like, this is the real thing. Anything that parts from this, you should immediately recognize, not because you studied every iteration of what could be counterfeit, but because you know what is real and true. And I'm defining that for you right here.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's an element of this that I think is so practical to you because there's all sorts of questions in the church. And I mean, the church at large, not just the reformed churches or the reformed Christian world there's always questions about what the best way to attract new people is and that, those are questions that happen within within the reformed world how, how do we get people in the door um and, and there's a i think there's a increased emphasis in the reformed world of getting people through the door because we're convicted that that's where they hear the gospel and that's where they get saved but but even beyond that like growing the numbers of your church is not a bad thing like it's okay for you to think about growth strategies that's not a problem but the problem comes in where a lot of churches start to think, well, we gotta update the worship for for the time. We gotta, we gotta do something new. We gotta have better songs. We gotta have flashier lights. We gotta have better fog machines, whatever it might be, we don't have to do any of that. Right. There's a we have these boundaries. They're they're gracious, protective boundaries. Right? When I um when when one thing that I love about um Christmas and, and we had your mom on for this this episode to talk about Christmas traditions. All right. But one of the things that I love about Christmas in the Schwamm household is it's very rare. I can't think of a time off the top of my head where somebody got a gift that they didn't want. Uh, and, and everybody's gracious, of course. When you get a gift, that's not something you you are, are really interested in. Um, you're, you're thankful for it. You understand that there's a, a loving intention behind it. But the one of the reasons for it is that this family is very intentional about communicating with each other what it is we'd like for Christmas. What gifts do we want? And sometimes what gifts do we not want? So it's it's very rare. I don't think I've ever run into it that I can remember where someone got a gift that they weren't really excited about. And that's because we have sort of a regulative principle of gift giving, right? right. There's a Christmas list. These are the things that I'm interested in. Or maybe if I'm not super particular, here are the kind of things that I'm interested in. Or here is something that I absolutely don't want. Please do not get this for me. I can remember when when um, Ashley and I got married, we did a gift registry and um, somebody decided to get us something that wasn't on the registry. And it was a nice gesture. We used that gift for many years. We didn't just throw it away, but it was it was like a set of ice cream bowls that didn't match anything else in our kitchen. Our colors were green and these were like red and blue. So they just stuck out. And we were thankful for the intention behind it. But honestly, there was kind of a point that it was like, we we asked you not to, we asked you to get us something different. We gave you the boundaries and you ignored them. And now we have something that doesn't really work for the, the thing that we wanted it for. That's a little bit of a, a sort of a, a light example, but it's kind of the same thing. And and this is this is maybe I'll touch on this real briefly. Because of Christ, all of our worship is imperfect. None of our worship is perfectly what right. God requires. So if you have someone out there who's telling you, well, your worship's not acceptable to God because it doesn't match with his requirements, none of our worship, even the most hardcore covenanter, regulative principle guy, even their worship is imperfect. And if God was accepting it based on the perfection of our worship and perfect conformity to his revealed will, none of our worship is acceptable. That's it's right. only for the sake of Jesus Christ that any of our worship is acceptable to God. Amen. And yes, we have to be intentional to uh, not offer strange fire, as it were, but because of who Christ is, God still honors the intention behind our worship. And I'm not going to go there, but there's a passage in one of the either Second King, one of the one of the Chronicles or Kings books, where um, the people come to Passover, and a bunch of them were not properly prepared for the Passover, and I think it's Hezekiah has them do the Passover anyways. And God and, and it says in the text, God is pleased with their worship, so right. God accepts our worship on the behalf of, on, on for the sake of Jesus Christ. The same way that He accepts us for the sake of Jesus Christ. He he um, I'm reading this unity and um, unity and continuity in the Reformed tradition. It it's a a book I'm reading on Lagos. I've mentioned it before and I said it was really dry, but now that I'm actually reading it, it's really good. And there was a phrase in there that said something like God doesn't just justify us, but He justifies our good works too. And that really, really stuck with me. And I think worship is the same way. So on one level, we're being protected by the law. We're being protected by the boundaries and the commands that God has given us. But then God is big enough to also realize that we're going to stray. We're going to get it wrong. But that doesn't justify us intending to do it wrong. When we intentionally offer strange fire, God is not pleased with that. Any more than if we intentionally commit adultery or intentionally uh, kill someone or intentionally steal or intentionally lie. When we commit high-handed sin, God is not pleased by that. When we sin kind of accidentally, God is not pleased by the sin, right. but he's pleased by the good intentions that we have. He's pleased by our desire to worship him. So, And even our desire is corrupted and has to be redeemed by Jesus. So th- this is a practical commandment. It may seem really abstract and sometimes it's like, well, I don't worship idols. Well, you do. <laughs> you definitely do. Sure. But, but God has given us boundaries to help us not to worship idols. And part of those boundaries is that we don't make graven images. We don't make mental images. We don't construct false images of God in our mind. And we worship the way that he's commanded us to, not the way that he has, quote unquote, allowed us to by not by not restricting us. We worship the way he's prescribed and we don't ever add anything to it. That's that's the second commandment right there.
0: Yeah, that's right on. I mean, it's what struck me what you were saying was this idea that, of course, all of our worship, even the most, most well-intentioned, falls short it's because the standard is perfection so setting that up before us we know then that this is where like the intercessory like the consistent and competent and efficacious intercessory mystery of christ right now like while we united talking is relevant and this is the very thing that justifies our work so because we know that we can't achieve the perfection here what with again we see then in the second commandment is in many ways, this is for us. Yeah. It's because it's it's God saying like, listen, yeah. I want you to understand true worship. It's not for him in the sense that he will take what is always imperfect worship and he will make it a blessing and efficacious before him because of the death resurrection, and intercessory mystery of Jesus Christ, his son, for his people and on behalf of his people. And yet it's still, isn't it a great thing to just know what is the right way in something? Like it's, there's a right way to change brakes in your car and there's a right way to file your taxes. And there's like, you know, a right way to, I don't know, mop a floor. And so all these things like we recognize, I just rather do it the right way because there's blessing in that. There's reward in that. There's a great fulfillment in that. And so also is there with worship, but oftentimes we think, We have a better way. Or we can amend or append the way. Yeah. And we think that we can do it better. And so all I would say is like a call to action to all our listeners. There might be some that are hearing this for the first time and saying like, how dare you, sir? (laughs) And so all I would say is you're all reasonable, rational people. Reason for yourself. But really sink into the second commandment and see why God is saying Giving us this idea of graven images. And is it possible that those images apply equally within the family of faith as they apply outside the family of yes. faith? So sometimes yes. we like to apply them just to other worldviews, other religious practices. What if, what if God is actually talking to his people? And he's saying, also, you're going to be tempted to syncretize. You're going to be tempted to take and bring into your midst things that are outside. But in addition to that, you are going to be tempted, like literally, you're going to be tempted. To- like within when this is happening to like, let's say make a golden calf (laughs) to represent me. Right. And I'm saying to you, don't do that. It's, it's a cheap version. It's the counterfeit. And if you try to go to like your local, I don't know, convenience store and buy something with a counterfeit bill, they're probably going to catch you and you're not going to be able to achieve what you want. Yeah. And that's what he's saying here is let your worship be authentic. Why? Because one, it is what's best for you. And two, of course, because he is always worthy of it. And so therefore, He gets to pick, he gets to choose, he gets to dictate the way in which it happens. I think the more that we're Christians and the more we try to really wrestle with this, the more we find that we just need to submit underneath the weight. Because as I keep saying in this series, everything collapses under the weight of worship except for God. Yeah, cannot stand that weight. And so to your point, if we make it up ourselves, which we inevitably do, when we decide that God's way is pretty good, but I'm just going to add a little something to it. Or God didn't speak on this, so it seems seems permissible. It's an argument from silence. So I'm going to insert this thing because it might draw more people. It might be more fleshy. It might somehow promulgate in a way or advertise or resonate in a way that's, that's more distinct. What we're doing is we're actually worshiping ourselves because we're saying, "I I could submit my complete trust to God in what he's commanded, but I'm going to say that there's something that I can do that's on a parallel track. The parallel track is just as dangerous as the path that exits and is in contradistinction to God. Yeah. So we just have to appreciate that if he's holy, if he's high and lifted up, if he is the one true God, then he just gets to dictate. I, what, what other way can we say this right now? I'm just yeah. talking around the same thing.
1: Yeah. There's a million uh, things that want me to talk about uh, images of Jesus. I'm not going to do it. We'll, we'll come back to it. Um, but But that that's the practical outflow of this. It is. is, is okay. I'm just going to say it. So do it. the most common argument, just to touch on the images of Jesus thing, because I know that people are expecting us to, and it's important because this is probably the biggest, this is probably the most in your face challenge that, that modern Christians have is what do we do with things like the chosen or with passion of the Christ back in the yeah, day? Yeah. Right. The argument that comes against the reformed view is typically something like, "Well, I'm not using those images to worship. I, it, you know, they're instructive, or they help. They really help me to connect with God more because I, I feel like I can understand Jesus better." Uh, those are just expressions of worship. Like, like yeah, those are such help. empty, right? Those are empty, hollow right. statements. Because what's the purpose of gaining knowledge about Jesus if it's not if it's not worship? Right. right. What's the purpose of feeling closer or, or better understanding Jesus if it's not worship? And, and that's exactly what the reformed tradition is, is guiding us, guarding us against, because that's exactly what the Bible is guarding us against. Right. Why do the Israelites make a golden calf? It's not it's not because they can't see what's going on on the mountain. Right. I mean, they can see the thunder and they can hear it and they're terrified by it. They ask for the golden calf because they don't know where Moses is gone. And they're not confident that they really are going to be connected with God. They're exactly. not, they're, they're not, they're not sure that God is actually going to do what he said he was going to do. So let's domesticate Him and let's make them a yes. little bit more palatable and let's do Let's, let's do something that's a little bit, these are people that grew up in Egypt, right? These are people who are used to either participating or at the very least seeing physical concrete idol worship. So let's, let's make God look a little bit more like that, just so it's a little bit easier for us to make this transition. I think we can see the failure in logic when we, when we apply that to the golden calf but but let's let's make God just a little bit easier to understand, and let's just let's just do the Jesus storybook, right? Bible. I mean, I'm not trying to slam on people who use that. I get I get why people do, and right. I, I mean, just you and I have both had a recent, relatively recent experience of trying to shop for a Bible, right. for a, like a, a children's Bible for a kid that don't have images of Jesus. It's really hard to do. So I, I'm not I'm not standing in judgment. I understand why that happens. I'm sympathetic to the difficulty that it presents. But it, it's really exactly the same thing. Right? There's the golden calf where we, they try to domesticate God, make them a little bit more palatable, a little bit closer to what they, they are used to, and a little bit more understandable to them. That's exactly what we're doing when we make images of Jesus. It's exactly what we're doing when we we create worship experiences to suit our own needs, to to tickle our own passions, to make us feel better about it, to entice unbelievers. All of that is just the same thing that happened with the golden calf we're just making god a little bit more domesticated a little bit more palatable a little bit more appealing well what we're saying there's like god's not appealing enough as he is god, right. god what god has given us in his revelation is not really sufficient so we don't want i don't want to belabor that we're already at like a, an hour and 10 minutes and and we could easily go several more episodes on this topic we could probably just do a, a don't make pictures of jesus podcast where every episode is just us talking about why we don't do that. So I don't want to keep looping on it, but I just think this is so vital for us to really get.
0: Yeah, I I think, again, the challenge would be just wrestle with that idea. And I I respect that Christians have different opinions on that. And it's perhaps it's possible that some listening or thinking, I I just really haven't thought in these particular terms. It's not that Tony and I have some corner on this market actually really standing on the shoulders of those who come before us that have spoken into this that okay, can help us to understand it. But you do need to evaluate it. It does command and demand something from us as followers of God, not as those outside the camp, so to speak. So I think that's where it really cuts against us. One, one last thing I'll say is like an example. Some, for some reason, you just talking about that, just reminded me that I haven't thought about this in years. There was a time where my wife was in the hospital for a significant period of time, 12 days. And it just so happened that uh, this hospital, which offered fantastic care, was has Catholic roots. So in every room, there is a crucifix. And I remember at the time thinking, well, this is super interesting that the crucifix is always placed in a direction where it's not behind the person uh, above the bed, but it's in front of them. Right. So of course, like, and this was their custom, they would often have uh, a father come from the Catholic church and uh, that I'll save those stories, which were super (laughs) fun for another podcast, if anybody wants to hear those. But I remember asking the father at some point a question, which I I felt like I already knew the answer to, but I wanted to hear him weigh on it. I said, why is it that all the crucifixes face the beds rather than the other way around? And of course he said, well, it's so that the convalescent person can look up and see our savior and be helped by him and the seeing of him. And I thought that's the problem, right? That's the problem that like to your point, Whenever we say that, that the image is somehow a help to us, a help in education, a help in instruction, a help in comfort, what we're actually saying, and I, I believe this is a conviction of scripture, is that we're betraying the fact that the invisible nature of God and the way that He has asked us to worship and to, to see him by faith in this temporal life before we receive the beatific vision, which is only reserved for when the soul comes into the presence of God himself. What we're saying is, it's not enough. It's not enough. And that's the problem. God is saying, I am enough. And the way in which I've instructed you to worship is life and health and sufficient. It is enough. And so I understand that that's going to cut across a lot of Christians because they're they're going to say to me, I can hear your voices saying, that's not what I'm doing. I'm not worshiping. I'm not really even being that helped by that. And I would say to you, honestly, but are you though? If it's any help, if it's any consolation, if it's any usefulness to you, because if it's not, then we might just reasonably say, you and I, well, then why have it? Yep.
1: Why take the risk?
0: Why have it? Yeah. And and I would submit that there is big risk here because God, you know why there's big risk? Because God is saying, I am jealous for who I am. I'm working on this project uh that's outside the podcast. And um it's more work related. And as a course of this, somebody uh w- well intentioned, represented my nature in another form. And I just had a meeting where they're like, What do you think of this? And I was like, Oh man! Well, I guess that's kind of looks like me. <laughs> like also, also doesn't. And the first thing that came to my mind is that you and I were going to have this discussion, and I was like, "Yeah, this is what God thinks." In some, in some small way, It's like, "Don't do it." And and like, if we're like like in our country, in the North, North America, in the U.S. in particular, we have laws again. We have defamation laws, which prevents the misrepresentation. You can literally come at somebody and seek like physical remuneration for a misrepresentation. How much more so than loved ones does God have a right to say, I am jealous for my name. I am jealous for my image and representation. Do not create any graven images. And I am fully convicted that when he says that, he's speaking about himself. Yes. And so this is the family, loved ones. We can have an intramural discussion where... We can all come to terms or all to come to terms of what this commitment means. So we're, we're well beyond our time, even though like you and I like choose the time. So like really <laughs> can anybody complain? Like, so what? It's a hour, 13 minutes. A like- podcaster is never
1: late or early. They always arrive precisely when <laughs> <than> they <laughs> intend to. That's
0: a deep cut. That's a deep cut. All right. So do you have do you have anything more to like to add to that? Is, have we wrapped it up? Does no, you know, I- like-
1: yeah, I think I think that that's a good place for us to end a lot of these themes because the second, third and fourth commandment really are just expositions of the first. A lot of these themes are going to come back up in the next couple days, de- next couple weeks here when we uh, approach those. So uh, so we can we can postpone some of that conversation until then. Um, huge thank you to anyone who has uh, supported us online, either through Patreon right, or sharing an episode on Twitter or Facebook. Um, you know, they, it really is, as they say it, word of mouth is the best way for this show to grow and for people to become aware of it. So if you enjoyed this episode or if you think it's been beneficial, please send the link to somebody on Facebook or Twitter, and then promptly delete your Twitter and your Facebook because it's the worst. (laughs) And then I should take my own advice, but, uh, seriously share, share the episode. If you think it's been useful, or if you want to start a fight, I guess you could probably send it to like your favorite Roman Catholic apologist or whatever. Don't do that. Um, and if you are interested in supporting us, you can go to com. Uh, there's a link in the top right that says join the brotherhood. You can find information about the merch store and about Patreon. All that stuff is there. Uh, and Jesse, until next time, honor everyone. Love that brotherhood.